Che, Dagi Jinsagi Pe Sonam Ki, Drola Panchia Sange Shog. The four immeasurables, immeasurable in the sense of um, there is no limit to the loving kindness, to the compassion, to the joy, to the equanimity. The object is all sentient beings, all living beings, wherever they are, whether you can see them, whether you can't see them, but particularly the ones that you can see who cause problems for you, the troublemakers. I have Fion in my life. You see people, how she tries to control me? She tries to take me over. So my practice is with Fion. I try to be kind, compassionate. Everybody has a Fion in their life. Don't they, Fion? So maybe you've got somebody in your life who creates disturbance for you, somebody in your life who tries to control you. I'm not saying Fion. She's not like that. But um, somebody who uh, doesn't say nice things to you when you need it. You know, they can say nice things. Are oh, you looking good today or you know, wearing nice clothes or whatever? But when you've got low self-esteem, low self-confidence, you're not feeling too good, not feeling too happy, not feeling well within your body, looking for somebody to say something nice, and they don't. They say, Ugh, what are you wearing that for? You don't look too good today. So then there's your object of the four immeasurables. May you be happy. <laughs> uh, and on the other hand, it's not saying that if somebody's abusive, it's okay, and you should just allow them to be abusive. So there's a very fine line between you being compassionate, you having loving kindness, and saying, stop, I'm really concerned about your behavior and what you're doing to yourself, right? So this attitude of the four immeasurables is about you building your strength and your compassion and your kindness to be able to deal with the difficulties of samsara. So that the difficulties of samsara don't disturb you. You're able to keep surfing the waves of samsara, if you like, without going up and down, up and down, dependent on the behavior of others for you to be happy. So I think Western society, including Asian society, whatever society, but I know about Western society. Um, in Western society, we could misconstrue these thought transformation practices as condoning um, somebody being abusive. But it's not condoning it. It's saying, if you can use it to transform your mind into loving kindness, compassion, fine. But if you have that loving kindness, compassion in your heart, and you're really concerned about the other person, then what should you do for them? Should you stop them? You know, kindly, but should you stop them? Not because your ego needs it, but because they need it. It's necessary for them to change their behavior. You understand?
I remember His Holiness saying, um, just because we talk about bodhicitta doesn't mean we're talking about becoming a doormat. That's what you've got to keep in mind. You're not a Buddhist doormat, you know, with written on the doormat, Buddhist, Buddhist welcome, clean your feet on me, do whatever you like to me. It's not like that. It's that um, you're strong, you're resilient, you're powerful. That enables you to say no when it's necessary to say no with compassion, not to say no because of aversion and anger and hatred. There's a difference in the way of saying no. Sorry, I'm just going on a bit. So the four immeasurables. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings never be separated from the happiness which is without suffering. And may all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free from both attachment and hatred, holding some close and others distant. Reverently, I prostrate with my body, speech, and mind. I present every type of offering actual and imagined. I declare all my negative actions accumulated since beginningless time and rejoice in the merit of all holy and ordinary beings. Please remain until the end of cyclic existence and turn the wheel of Dharma for living beings. I dedicate my own merits and those of others to the great enlightenment. The mandala offering. So particularly thinking of everything that you're attached to, desirous attachment, offering that. Mountains of chocolate, mountains of coffee, mountains of, I don't know, cigarettes, mountains of alcohol, whatever you would like to give up the attachment to. Not give up, it's not about the object, but it's about the attachment to the object. When you have attachment, difficult to stop, if not impossible to stop. When we give up the attachment, then we have choice. I can choose whether to stop or not. Sajipurki Jokshing Metog Tramri Rablingji Nidegen Padi Sangejing Du I heard, I think it was on the radio, um, yesterday, it was an Indian man, I think in Australia, uh, who started a movement of people stopping to stop using their electronic devices or their computer phone for five hours. So there's a movement now, the five hour movement. And the interviewer was saying, Oh, it seems so difficult. And he said, Yes, but many university students, many college students, are getting on board and they make it one day, one particular day where you stop using for five hours. That's what I mean about the attachment. You know, imagine you stop using your phone for five hours and you sort of, you know, 
your hand keeps reaching out. You know, just want to ping. I just want to check the messages. You know, it's like that. We can be so, become so obsessional about checking, checking, checking um, that we're not in control. The device is in control of us. So it's about not the device, but the use of the device, the, the attachment to the device. And where does the attachment come from? Desire. So then the desire moves your mind. I want. I want a pleasurable message. You mean you hear bing, and then you look, and you ah, must be something important. And it's the pizza place saying, "We'll give you two pizzas for one." And you think, oh, "I must eat pizza." You know, desirous attachment. So, are we in control, or are the devices in control? And this is all because we think the devices are inherently pleasure giving. The computer the iPad, the um, phone, whatever it is. We think they're inherently giving us happiness, giving us pleasure. The pleasure and the happiness is in the device because it appears that way. The sound goes off. You open it, and there's the happiness. You know, your friend messaging you. If, you know, if you're getting into a relationship, where are you? What are you doing? I've just had a cup of tea. Are you having a cup of tea? Would you like a biscuit? I'd like a biscuit, you know? So all these nice messages can be going backwards and forwards. And it's as if it's the device that's giving you the happiness. And so you believe in the device as the pleasure-making machine until the relationship is going bad and then you're getting the bad messages. Where are you? I hope you're far away. <laughs> I hope you're nowhere near me, <laughs> etc. And then you start thinking, oh, I don't know if I want a phone anymore. I don't know if I want a computer anymore. So our experience of emptiness, of this non-inherent existence of an object, our experience of it is through the happiness and the suffering, isn't it? So, you know, today I wanted to talk to all of you, and thank you very much for joining from wherever you're from. But with the motivation of Bodhicitta, we're on our way to Bodhicitta in the Lamrim text, um, wanting to liberate all sentient beings by myself alone, I will do it. But how am I going to do it? If we don't go step by step through the path to enlightenment, and really understand and really meditate on the stages of the path, then um, I said to somebody the other day, we can be thinking in cliches. So what's a cliche? You know when there's a problem, Well, yeah, I'll try and think of, um, my mother had lots of cliches. I'm trying to think of one of them. She never said life is suffering, um, but I don't know. What did your mother say when you were growing up, when you were, were crying, sobbing your heart out, Lillian? Mothers say things, don't they? 
I, I remember when I, I'd burned myself, my grandmother was French, and so she used to get something, butter maybe, and put it on and rub it, and she'd recite some French. Probably you're a really stupid boy. <laughs> Why did you burn yourself? <laughs> and then blow. And I used to think it was like some sort of magic mantra, and the pain would go away. So cliches are a bit like that. So you can be a Buddhist using Buddhist cliches. Oh, well, life is suffering. Oh, well, samsara is like that. Samsara is suffering. Oh, well, um, life is passing. Time is passing. Death is coming. I think we can use a lot of phrases like this, but without the depth of meaning. Do you understand? I see nobody nodding. So we have teachings that can lead us to cliches, but don't lead us to realizations. So my hope of working through the Lam Rim slowly is to enable you to have realizations of the Lam Rim as opposed to cliches from the Lam Rim. Just to say, oh, well, life is suffering. Nirvana is the place to go. Samsara is the place to get out of. You know, all these sort of sayings. Um, in the moment, it can make you feel better, but actually it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change your mind. It doesn't transform your mind into a Dharma mind. So the Four Noble Truths, the first teaching that Shakyamuni Buddha gave, was something that he thought about for many weeks. He sat in Bogaya, thinking, thinking, thinking. What am I going to teach? What am I going to teach? Not me, but him. And he's thinking, well, I could teach this, but don't think they'll understand. Teach this, I don't think they'll understand. Because who had the experience of Shakyamuni Buddha of renouncing family life, renouncing the kingdom, um, going out by himself, studying with the greatest minds of the time, being a renunciate. Who had the same mind? Nobody. So it's like a mountain, and he was at the very top of the mountain, looking down, and not from a sense of pride, but you know he's alone at this pinnacle of Dharma, Dharma understanding, and looking down and thinking, who has a mind with my sort of experience? Nobody. Because only he went through all those experiences. So how do I give them my experience in a teaching? Something that would tell them the truth and enable them to know the truth. So that's why it took weeks for him to think about it. And as I often say, if he was a politician, then he would have said, the first noble truth is happiness. Then people would say, wow, Buddhism, it's amazing. I want to follow. But then you start to suffer, you know, your body's a problem or whatever is a problem, and they start to say, well, I don't know if this is true. You know, I think he might have lied to me. So he wanted to tell the truth, the four noble truths. When you have a certain level of mind, you will understand it to be true. 
So it's true for everybody. Once they have that level of mind, that realization of emptiness. So he went to sana where his friends were practicing and he knew they were in Sarnath. He walked from Bogaya to Sarnath. It's a long way. And when he arrived, these uh, friends of his, ex-friends of his, from his demeanor, from everything, they realized something had changed. So he said to them, I want to give you a teaching. And they accepted to receive that teaching. And so the first teaching that Shakyamuni Buddha gave was the Four Noble Truths, and he taught it four times. So there are different turnings of the wheel within the Four Noble Truths. So if we talk about it simply, I'm not particularly talking about it in a philosophical way, but in a practical, um, sort of down-to-earth way, I wanted to talk more, I think, about the truth of suffering. Because the Four Noble Truths are the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering. If there's a cause, the cause must be impermanent. Therefore, the cause must finish. The result must finish. So, truth of suffering, cause of suffering. Therefore, there must be a cessation of suffering. Suffering is not a permanent phenomena that lasts forever. If you think about other systems, um, if you go to a hell realm, you're in the hell realm forever. Or you go to heaven forever. That's a different system. But in our system, we have similar to heaven and hell. But because it's caused, then there's a cessation of the cause. So you go there, you experience the great bliss for a certain period of time, your karma finishes, you come out. That's still samsara. Heaven is samsara. Hell is samsara. We don't call it heaven and hell, but God realms, uh, hell realms. It's also samsara. Then animal realm, samsara. God, uh, God realm, samsara. Human realm, samsara. Demigod realm, samsara. So samsara, samsara, and we usually depict it in a wheel in the sense of some appear to have less suffering, higher. Some have more suffering, lower in the wheel. But wherever you are, all of it is suffering. But when you have realizations of the lamb rim, you're still within this world but you, if you're a bodhisattva, you're here, but you're not suffering. So when we talk about um, going to nirvana or being enlightened, that being, you know, Geshe Lama Kunchog, His Holiness, they're here, but they're not in samsara, in the sense of being samsaric. Their minds are not samsaric. Their minds are out of samsara. So the mind is nirvana. The mind is enlightened. But the body is still here because of compassion. So suffering cause cessation path. Suffering cause cessation 
suffering will finish, but then another suffering will appear. Then, because it's impermanent, that will finish. Another suffering appears. That's what we call samsara, the wheel of suffering going around and around. Then the path, what path do you follow? Some people really like loving kindness. Some people really like compassion. Some people like to practice generosity. So what sort of practices do you follow in order to enlighten your mind, in order to benefit others? So going back to the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, mm, there are eight sufferings, six sufferings, three sufferings. So I have some small verses relating to sufferings. So I thought I'd read these to you because I talked previously, didn't I? About the eight, the, the six, and the three in the past. Sufferings. I talked about them. So I, I think I don't need to talk about them much again because people can go back and watch the video. But here's one about beings in the great hells. This is from Nagarjuna. Though extremely unbearable suffering be experienced for even a billion years, one will never be freed from that life as long as the non-virtue is not exhausted. A billion years in hell. Beings in the cold hells, this is from Chandragomen, in an extreme wind piercing to the bone, their emaciated bodies shiver, bent into a crouch, and burst into hundreds of blisters eaten by insects as their fat, pus, and marrow drip out. Well, cheerful. But this is not cheerful, because it's to give you that feeling of renunciation, that that's not where I want to go. So therefore, don't create the cause, but if perhaps I have created the cause to experience the result, I need to purify those with nihilistic views in their future lives will abide in darkness and freezing winds and diseases will arise eating even to their bones. If you care for yourself, would you hold such views? This is nihilism where you don't believe in anything existing. You know, it's sort of what a lot of people think Buddhism is, but it's not. Because there's one extreme, nihilism, nothing exists. The other extreme is eternalism. Everything exists the way you think. And Buddhism is between the two. Buddhism is the middle way. Summary of the suffering of the hell beings. Let me read it first to see if it's too extreme for you. The suffering of being pierced by a spear 300 times in a day cannot compare to the least suffering of hell, cannot rival it, cannot come anywhere near it. Nagarjuna. And then Shantideva says, who intentionally created all the weapons for those in hell? Who created the burning iron ground? The Buddha said that all such things arise from one's evil mind. Hence, within the three realms of existence, there is nothing to fear but my mind. So there you go. When you start contemplating hell, 
you could start to think that hell really exists. I mean, even in the text, it says the hot hells are below Bodgaya, the cold hells are below another place. It starts to give you the feeling that there's actually a destination, a place labeled hell. You know, hot hells are there and cold hells over there. But actually, hell is an experience of mind. Hell is created by mind. Hell is experienced by mind. And this is really difficult to understand. Because when we're experiencing pain in the body, we really relate to the body as the source of the pain. Right? So, I don't have anything to stick in me, luckily. But, you know, I stick a pin in my hand. Then the pain comes in the hand. I can forget about the pin. I can forget about who did that. But what I can really think about is the suffering of the the pin, the pain that's in the hand. So when we think about the hell realms, we think about all those beings in the hell realms and there are torturers and there are terrible things happening and it really seems to exist as a place and if I'm a bad person, I'm going to that place and they're waiting for me. You know, there's like a book and my name's in the book and they're sharpening their knives, and they're waiting for me. Namgale's coming. Can't wait. The hot hells, the cold hells, whatever. But it's not like that. It's that you have created the suffering potential within your mind. That suffering potential can be purified, but if it's not purified, it will be experienced. If it's experienced, if in this life there was a, um, a constant experience over and over and over, hellish experience that became a habit so that at the end of your life, this is what appears strongly in your mind. This is then the probable um, propelling karma to take you into the hell. If you were very kind during your life and you have odd moments of anger, then the kindness would be the propelling karma. So just giving you, you know, the two opposites, not just about hell, but it's also about being kind, being compassionate. But if your habit day after day after day is this um, anger, hatred, aversion, whatever it is, and that's the habit that you really create so that at the end of your life, you're really angry, you're really upset. You're in a coma, but still, uh, uh, you know, sort of really angry in the coma. That would be the propelling karma for the next life. So then, where do you go? There is then uh, this collective of beings who experience a similar karma. So you're the one who needs to suffer because you've created the karma to suffer. So you've created the potential of suffering. Now you need somebody who will make you suffer. So your mind creates the torture. You create the hell. And then there are other beings with a similar karma. So what we call a hell realm 
is actually similar beings together experiencing a similarity. And then we believe in it. We believe it's a realm. We believe it exists. But actually, when we analyze it, we find it doesn't exist. It's a figment of mind. It's something coming from mind. Not truly existent, but seeming to exist, appearing to exist. You understand? Like the rainbow or the dream tiger, appearing to exist, seemingly existent, but actually non-existent from the point of view of emptiness. When we analyze, does it really exist? No, but it exists because there are beings in there that are suffering. So this is the hard part about emptiness. The cure, the path, is emptiness. But the hard part about emptiness is having the realization of emptiness, not just saying, oh, well, it's all empty. The cliché. And I hear this cliché a lot, which is mainly why I don't like to talk about emptiness, because what I've heard over the years, when you talk about emptiness, afterwards, students will say, new students will say, oh, well, it's all empty. So the conclusion is, doesn't exist. Which is nihilism. So you're doomed. Doomed, according to somebody. So you don't want to be nihilistic and say, doesn't exist. You don't want to say it's truly existent. It really exists. Because then there would be no causes and conditions. So somewhere in between. I've created the causes to experience the result. And the result is something that appears to exist. But doesn't really exist in the sense of it's not without causes and conditions. It has to exist because of causes and conditions. Therefore, it can be changed. Therefore, it can be purified. Therefore, things can happen. Conditions can change. Causes can change like that. So the good news about suffering is that you don't have to suffer. We're suffering but we don't have to suffer. There's a way out. There's, there's something that can be done. So the meditation on the suffering of animals, it's an animal state, also has the various sufferings of being killed, bound, beaten, and so on. Those who have abandoned the virtue of peace have the dreadful suffering of eating each other, some die for the sake of pearls or wool, bones, flesh or skin. Other helpless ones are exploited with the blows of kicking, fists, whips, hooks and prods. This is a Nagarjuna. Then the hungry ghost. Also among hungry spirits, there is constant and unavoidable suffering of lacking desired things. They undergo most terrible misery due to hunger, thirst, cold, heat, fatigue and fear. In the spring, even the moon feels hot to them, while in winter, the sun feels cold. Under their mere gaze, trees turn empty of fruit, and even rivers become dry. This is Nagarjuna. Then the lower rebirths, from whatever action you create, 
you will reap a, a similar fruit. So it's like that. When we contemplate the lower realms, the suffering of the lower realms, then we can think about the hot hells, the cold hells, the hungry ghost realms, the animal realms, hot hells, cold hells, hunger ghost, animal. They would be the main ones to contemplate and to think beings are suffering terribly in those, in those situations. Like I wrote on, on Facebook the other day when it was 39 degrees and I was in here lighting all these lamps and it, I don't know, it must have been about 50 degrees in this room. And I'm thinking, but this is nothing compared to the hell realm. And then you, sometimes you're really cold and you think, oh, I'm so cold. But if you can think this is nothing compared to the, to the cold realm, the hell realm. But if you start thinking that it's an inherent realm, it really exists from its own side, then you've got a mistaken understanding. It's a mistaken view. It doesn't exist from its own side. It exists from your side. You create the hell. Same, you create nirvana. You create heaven. You create the best. You create the worst. And why is this important? When you contemplate on the hot hells, the cold hells, Does compassion arise? It should, because this would be the worst. And they can't do anything for themselves, but you can do something for them. You know, during this time, um, many people ask me to pray for them, for their families, for their extended families. People have died um, in the past. You know, people have died. And may they not suffer. May they not have problems. So for me, this is showing a kind mind towards the past relatives, great-grandparents, the grandparents who passed away, concern for their rebirth. Are they in a fortunate rebirth or unfortunate? But still, that's a narrow view that we're thinking about our family, but then what about everybody else, you know, the greater number of beings is not in the human realm, the greater number of beings is in the other realms, the realms that we can't see. So when we're talking about the development of bodhicitta, I think the development of bodhicitta is difficult to have realizations of because of the hell realms, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm we can see, but the hot hells, the cold hells, the hungry ghost, we don't see them. And so I think we can say, hmm, you know, yeah, I know Buddha taught this, but, you know, I'm really not sure. Many people have told me I'm really not sure. It exists, it doesn't exist. Maybe, maybe not. But if you have that doubting mind, you're doubting Buddha, and what Buddha said, 
but you're also doubting the suffering of those countless beings who are in those realms. You're denying them help because by thinking there are suffering sentient beings in the hot hells, the cold hells, etc., then your merit, the practices that you're doing and that you're offering, is going to benefit them. Whereas if you don't believe in those realms, nothing can happen. They can't receive any benefit. So you have to suspend your disbelief. You know, it's like, um, I don't believe in Antarctica because I've never been there. Means you need to experience everything to believe in it. But in this case, Buddha's been there. Buddha taught it. So you're going to believe some things that Buddha said and not believe other things that Buddha said. That's arrogance, right? So if we're arrogant, we can think, well, I know better than Buddha. I think there's no hell realm. But he went there. He had experience of the hell realms. He wanted to tell us about it. Because one, he doesn't want you to go there. And two, he doesn't want your mother to be there or your grandmother, or your grandfather, or your brother, or your sister, whoever. We don't want anybody in the hell realms. So we want to teach them in order to avoid the hell realms. So the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering, we might think, oh yeah, yeah, I know what suffering's about. I get this headache sometimes, and I take two aspirin, and then after a while I feel better, and that's suffering. And this is like nothing. A minute suffering. What we should be concentrating on is the worst sufferings that can be experienced so that we don't want to create that cause of that suffering. Right? So the truth of suffering the cause of suffering. So from your experience of the truth of suffering, it should lead on to what are the causes of that suffering and am I creating the causes or have I possibly created the causes? And if so, what am I going to do? How am I going to purify? How am I going to remove those negative causes? So be careful. There's a middle way. I'm not saying hell exists. You know, it's a place, it's a destination. You've done bad things, you're going to hell. Not saying like that. The mind creates the hell. So for your mind, the hell exists the same way as the rainbow exists. But when it comes to analysis, the analysis of wisdom, you, it's not findable as a place, as an inherently existent place. And yet, you can find it when you're in there. When you're in hell, you can't say it doesn't exist. You can't be in hell being tortured, you know, and then say, no, it doesn't exist at all. But then you could think it really exists. I think when you have pain, you know, people have pain of cancer, of um, any sickness. When you have any pain that goes on and on and on and on, you start to think pain truly exists. 
not just causes and conditions, but just pain exists. You understand? And this is what stops you from having realizations of emptiness. Because we don't think about impermanence, we don't think about causes and conditions, we just think suffering. Suffering exists. I'm suffering. And it's going on and on and on and on, and now I've forgotten the beginning of the suffering. Because I've forgotten the beginning, I'll also forget about the end. Just suffering exists. So I think that must be the experience of beings in hell, is that they're in hell, and it, it seems like there's no end to it. So they must have terrible despair and unhappiness, apart from all the torture that goes on. But can you imagine the mind that just wants to find an exit, wants to find a way out, but there is no way out. You can't conceive of a way out. So also that would be so depressing, so terrible to the heart that this is just going to go on and on and on forever. You can't even think about impermanence. I think in the hell realm, it would feel like everything's permanent. So they really need help. They really need your dedication, your motivation, your dedication to get them out of the hell realms, especially family members, friends, but also, you know, nobody, nobody should suffer like that. I know they created the cause, but they didn't know what they were doing when they created the cause. If we knew better, we'd do better for all of us. So we should have compassion. So the truth of suffering, you know, you can um, dwell on one of the realms, maybe the one that's difficult for you. For many people, animal realm is the easiest. The cat, you know, the dog, the little puppy. And then you think about their suffering. Oh, but they don't suffer that much, do they? They're so cute. Then people think about dolphins and whales and, you know, all this sort of thing. But then you need to go deeper. So I think the animal realm, yeah, there's a possibility of going deeper. The hell realms, the hungry ghost realm. We have minor experiences of suffering with heat and cold, with not eating. You take precepts and you don't eat for a period of time, 18 hours or something. And you think, oh, I'm really suffering. You know, food, food, I must get food. For some people, so difficult to not eat for a period of time. And then for some people, very easy. It's an experience of mind over body. But if you pay too much, too much, uh, put too much emphasis on the body, then the body starts to say, oh, my stomach's rumbling, must have food now. Because we're in a society where we have fridges, we have kitchens. You know, if you think back 50 years ago, 60 years ago, to the beginning of fridges, this ice block, wasn't it? They used to deliver ice. I mean, we didn't even have a fridge. But I heard about these rich Canadians who had an ice block on the top and that would gradually melt and keep things cold. 
and then we got electricity or gas, and then people had fridges that way. This is, you know, not within a hundred years, 50 years, 60 years, whatever, that we're able to just go out there, open the door, get food. We don't have to be hungry. So for us to decide to do precepts or nungne, whatever it is, it's like, I remember when I first became monk in Copan, it was so cold at night. And so the thought of not eating at night was a nightmare. It was like, you know, my, already I'd, had, I'd been sick for a year, um, stomach sickness for a year. And you wouldn't believe it, but, you know, my cheeks were like this. I was so skinny. And I had to keep eating, constant eating, because um, I'd lost so much weight. We'd gone in Tibet, come out of Tibet. I was really sick. So this thought of not eating for, say, 18 hours, it can be a hell. But if you compare that to the hungry ghost, who for 12 years can't get food, you know, there's that one hungry ghost who's looking for his family, searching, 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 can't find food anywhere for 12 years. Then you start to get an idea about their suffering. How's the time? Okay. So that's the, the truth of suffering. I just want you to investigate the eight sufferings, the six sufferings, the three sufferings, suffering of suffering, suffering of change, or pervasive suffering. What does it mean to have suffering of suffering? What's all pervasive suffering? I think that one difficult, all pervasive suffering. Everything is in the nature of suffering. What does it mean? If you um, have any pleasure in life, looking at it as not the source of happiness, but is it the source of suffering? And immediately when we're looking at, co at coffee or chocolate, we'll say, well, no, of course it's not the cause of suffering. It must be the cause of happiness. Chocolate, coffee, whatever else, tea, whatever. But, you know, you take some and you think, oh, so happy. But take too much of it, then the happiness stops and the suffering starts. Right? So any activity in the beginning is labeled by your mind when you like it as the source of happiness. But when it starts to change, when it becomes too much, it starts to become suffering. So was the happiness coming from externally, the chocolate, the roller skating, the ice skating, the blades, you know, whatever you're doing, was the happiness coming from externally or internally, from the outside or the inside? Where's the happiness coming from? It's the mind. And we put the label onto the object. You know, I've got a cup of coffee. I'm going to be really happy when I drink this coffee. And you drink it. 
Oh, delicious. Best coffee ever. But drink 10, 20. Still, best coffee ever? No. Mind starts to change. We start to have a physical reaction, but we start to understand that the happiness is not in the coffee, it's the mental reaction to the coffee, the desirous attachment to the coffee, to the chocolate. We have imputed, projected onto the object, that's what gives me happiness. And after a while, that projection can start to change. Look over the years, how your mind has changed. Look over the years, what you think of as suffering then, what do you think of as suffering now? Often it's changed. When we were children, um, I remember when I was a child, we used to get this sherbet with a, uh, the straw to suck the sherbet was licorice, right? I think it was called licorice sherbet or something like that. Um, so you bite the end off the sherbet, off the licorice, and then you'd have to suck through the, through the straw, which is licorice. But of course, it never worked very well. So you'd be sucking. <laughs> so frustrated as a child trying to get this sherbet. And in the end, you just take the straw out, you know, the licorice out, undo the packet and just, you know, eat it like that. Then we used to have flying saucers, which had sherbet inside. They were delicious. Um, all different, you know, sweets that you had when you were a kid. We used to get four for a penny for whatever. So your happiness was having one penny and buying four sweets. But of course, it didn't last for very long. Then you had to go back and get four more. It's always more, more, more. So now, as an adult, you might, ha you might have happy memories of those things as a child, and you might think of them with great joy. But if you were given them now, would you have the same reaction to them as when you were a child? You probably think yes, but in actuality, probably no. You probably wouldn't make you as happy as it made you then because the mind has changed. And then you go from white chocolate to milk chocolate to dark chocolate to 80%. You know, your taste in chocolate can change. When you were a child, did you drink coffee? You know, did you say, oh, Mom, I really want coffee. But you grow up, other people are drinking coffee, you start drinking coffee, and you have this particular milk and this particular brew and this and this and this. We're very specific about where the happiness comes from. And that, again, that will change over time. So the truth of suffering is about investigating your suffering, to start with, the suffering of those around you, birth, aging, sickness, death, that's happening around. I mean, this is unfortunately, tragically, 2020 into 21 is really a time for birth, aging, sickness, death, all these sufferings. 
to contemplate on those sufferings. As soon as we're born, we're aging. The minute we're born, we're getting older. Then sickness? Do we get sickness? Yeah. The conditions change around us. Very hot, very cold, food, sleep, etc. Sickness? Not so difficult in a human body. And then death? We don't know when it's happening. One day you breathe in, can't breathe out, gone. So particularly those four sufferings, we can see now with COVID on a daily basis. You know, when the United States reached 500, was it 500,000 deaths? 500,000 deaths. I mean, it's an inconceivable number. 500,000 deaths. The uh, United Kingdom, so many deaths, so many sicknesses, so many other countries. Uh, Annie Rita told me in Switzerland, still there's uh, something like thousands of new cases every day of COVID in places like Switzerland. So we need to contemplate on this because I think what can happen is that we get an overload, you know, an information overload that every day COVID, there's COVID, there's, and in the end you can think, oh, you know, too much. We're okay in Australia. Leave us alone. But we have to keep remembering that these figures mean one person died, they had family, friends, you know, all those energy ripples of suffering that go out. So 500,000 means, not 500,000, but mother, father, brother, sister, cousins, aunties, uncles, that suffering went out to, to billion, maybe millions, not maybe not billions, but went out to bi millions. I keep wanting to say billions. I want to exaggerate. Um, but went out to millions and millions of others made them suffer. And, you know, I hear about the tip of the iceberg, which is that people write to me and say, um, this person died, that person died, will you pray for them? And uh, I, really, I really get touched by the feeling that these people have for their friends, for their family who passed away with COVID. It's a tragedy. But then these tragedies have happened before plague, you know, um, polio, many, many things have happened in the past. So it's not the first time, it won't be the last time, but how we respond to it depends on whether mentally we come up or whether we go down. Do we go into depression because of COVID, because of the problems now? Do we go down or do we come up and we use this as a way of realizing, yes, it's true, samsara is suffering. That no matter where I am in samsara, whether I'm up, God realms, middle, human realm, down, hell realms, it doesn't matter where I am, I'm in samsara. So now the determination is I must get out of samsara. Not buy a ticket to go somewhere, but 
mentally, I've got to transform my thinking, my way of behaving. Everything has to be transformed into a positive response to the world, to samsara. So I think that's the message I wanted to give today. The truth of suffering, what we use the truth of suffering for, what we meditate on. I mean, if you want to think about then the suffering of humans, as I said, we've already done the eight suffering, six suffering, three sufferings. I already gave a teaching on that in the Lamb Rim. The animal realm, you can think about their sufferings. Um, and then you can go to the demigod realm or the, um, the jealous realm, the angry realm, and then the god realm. Again, two realms that you can't perceive. Difficult because you can't see it. But if you think about it, then these jealous, angry minds that then don't come in a human body but have a subtle body. And who are they jealous and angry towards? The god realm. So the demigods, sort of semi-gods, they're below, the god realm above, god realm having a great time, partying, <laughs> food, everything they want. Wow, 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 I'm having such a wonderful time. And the demigod realm looking up and thinking, I hate them. So how do you end up there? How do you end up in the demigod realm? Somebody gets something good and you think, ugh. I hate them. They win the lottery. You go, <clears throat> I paid $20 on that lottery. I should have won the lottery. You know, it's not rejoicing. It's the opposite of rejoicing. Poor me. I didn't get it. I should get it. Everybody thinks they should get the, the lottery or the girl or the relationship. or Everybody thinks like that, of course. But in the Dharma context, Suffering, what's the cause of the suffering? So if you look at the God realm, you think, well, what's the cause of the God realm? If you look at the demigod realm, what's the cause of the demigod realm? The jealousy, the anger. What causes that realm? The human realm, what causes it? The animal realm. Go through the realms and you think about the cause. Right? So first start with the sufferings. Look at the realms, the collective experience of suffering, and think to yourself, well, what causes that? And then you've got to the second noble truth, the cause of the suffering, right? Karma and delusion. But we can just say, oh, well, it's karma, isn't it? You know, like all the modern movies these days, they say, oh, well, it's karma. But what does karma mean? It's an action that has made this happen, this action produces this result. So what is that action that produces the suffering? This is what you've got to think about, rather than I just say to you, so first noble truth is suffering, second is cause, so let's tie those together, and then you think it's easy peasy, you know? I don't have to make any effort, because he's just telling me. But I'm saying, look at the six realms, of existence within samsara and think what are the causes 
for those six realms, meditate on those causes, and do you think that you've created any of those causes? If you think you have created in this life or have created in past lives, there's an assumption there, but a feeling, you know, I've experienced some suffering in this life. I think there's indications that I haven't been such a perfect person in the past. Then it brings you to a feeling of change. Something must change. What needs to change? I need to change. What needs to change? What do I give up in order for change to happen? Renunciation. You know, this brings us to renunciation, to wanting to change because we want things to be better. Is that clear? I'm looking at Lillian over the glare of the lights. Okay, so if we have any questions, I can perhaps try to answer. Nobody? Yes. Okay, then. Fine. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you, teacher. Happy New Year. I have two questions. Of course. I try to be short. The first I doubt one. It. <laughs> Your doubt is very. Um, My doubt is, well, is well right grounded. on. <laughs> I have well 100% faith. This will not be a short question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go on. Um, you said. When we die, um, mm. our prominent traits will, will like uh, if we are kind and loving, then we mm. will be peaceful. Mm. But if we have been angry, we will mm. be like dying on the very angry. Mm. I totally understand that. That's how my mother died. Okay, my mother, um, I thought I wouldn't be, uh, she wouldn't be the subject of my spiritual path, but now I'm, I'm including her back to the curriculum because of what you said. Because when she died, um, she she is she is angry and has a lot of resentment. But for um, I secretly play Om Mani Padme home. Uh, I think she uh, before she died, she's yeah. Catholic. So on one hand, I always think um, she did this as my uh, like uh, Bodhisattva. She is holding a mirror for me. Mm. She, if not for her, I wouldn't be learning all this because uh, if she's a friend, I'll just say goodbye and never talk to her again. Because <laughs> she's my mother, I cannot yeah. give her up. Yeah. And I am put into the pot together with her. Yeah. So in, in this way, um, after she, um, and then throughout, even when she is alive, I always dedicate, now I dedicate to her. If what you said is true, will she be, in that area or if i took it that because of her she liberated me and now i am liberating myself and hope, hopefully other sentient beings actually she is a bodhisattva in disguise only in a very um, appealing package mm. would that alleviate her from like a a, a, a bad rebirth um, because one of my friends told me, shamanic, shamanic, she said, your mother is fine. She said, don't think about her and she's proud of you. Don't think about her anymore and, and don't miss her or something like that. So, I mean, is she okay? Because when she died, she was still like very angry. Mm. But, but 
until maybe she is not in another form, whatever. But um, mm. yeah, how about that? Because I think because of what uh she of the mirror, she lip. I'm not. I'm not yet liberated, but I she put me on the path. She is as important as Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. So is that the show question? <laughs> it could be longer. You see, I said I had faith <laughs> that it wasn't going to be short. Um, I don't know where your mother is, and we don't know whether your mother's a bodhisattva, right? Hello, you still there? I think she is. Yeah, but uh, but I'm thinking you shouldn't think that. Oh, okay. Um, and I'll tell you why, because you I'm know, not could, happy. I know <laughs> you won't be happy with me at all. Sometimes I'm going to give you the short answer. So the short answer could be your mother could be in hell. She could be in the hot hells mm. and suffering terribly. If you think in cliches, you can think, oh, well, you know, maybe she was a bodhisattva. Maybe she did great benefit to me. Uh, she's okay. I would rather assume that she's not okay and that you dedicate your practices to her just in case. Because then no harm. But if you assume that she's okay and she's not okay, you're denying her help. I'm not a happy teacher. Can I assume oh. she is okay and I still dedicate? Yeah. Okay. Either way, dedicate. But, you know, I tend to think on the negative side because I tend to think, we'll say somebody has, by mistake, um, I have a nephew in India who, who says, mistakely. So, by mistakely, has gone in the wrong direction at the last minute and has ended up in a negative rebirth. And by your prayers, by their good karma, you can pull them out. Right? You have that ability to get them out of the hell realms if they have the hook that you can hook onto, some good karma, which your mother must have, to be able to pull them out. But if you don't think about them being in a negative rebirth, you can't pull them out. Yeah, but I think, yes, I understand. I so I would rather think yeah. maybe she was a great bodhisattva and maybe she went to hell, who knows. So I would work from both perspectives. I think her behavior towards you was as a bodhisattva, but still she could end up in the hell realms because maybe as a bodhisattva she wants to be in the hell realms and help sentient beings. Who knows? But from your side, in order to give the maximum help to your mother, assume that she's in the worst situation, not the best situation. No? I don't want the image. Oh, what can I do? You see, you're one of those people that when Buddha's thinking, what can I say? What can I say? He was thinking about you. Well, I won't talk about suffering because you won't like it. No. I will 
I will. Yes. I will. I Think will not push that. it. I will not push it away. I'll okay. chew on it as always. I always leave the door open to the possibility of somebody being in a terrible rebirth, and at least if I dedicate, I know I'm doing them good. And if they are in that terrible rebirth, they can come out of it. And if they're not in that terrible rebirth, no problem, nothing wasted, right? But at least I'm I'm keeping connection and keeping my heart open to the suffering of people who could be in those. Horrible situations. But if I imagine she has a rebirth, or she has returned to, uh, she has returned to enlightenment, then we can be returned. teammates, and we can still dedicate. I see. Hmm. I sorry, teacher. I second second question. You. Yes. <laughs> okay. The second question is about the. The suffering thing. I totally the suffering thing. The thing. The, thing. The, the, that thing. That that truth. Yes. That truth. Yes. Yeah. This is. Uh, this is. This is. I experience it to be truthful, but sometimes I find it very mood spoiler. You know. <laughs> you know when, when you're mood... when you're drinking a cocktail on the forty fifth floor of Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yes. when I my husband and I we are like. Good friends, we are buddies, right? Yes. I really appreciate our relationship. Very yes. We're buddy. We are like buddies. But sometimes when he's asleep, and I look at him and say, "Oh, I'm so grateful I have this uh buddy," but then the next moment I think, "Oh, he will die, not yes. any moment." Yes. And then, and then, okay, I am a Buddhist. I accept that. Okay, the good side is I will treat him better. <laughs> but the second, but the but the The downside is well, it's really, it's sometimes uh, it's like why bother because he's gonna die. <laughs> yeah, not really like this. Like everything, uh, uh, whenever maybe this the whole gist of Buddhism. Whenever oh, this is so blee blee blah blah, and then immediately the Buddhist teaching is like a wave, you know, something like that. But maybe it this takes a, it takes point. away the peaks. Yep. You know. Yep. But before we had this whoosh 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 yep. whoosh. It like, takes away the peaks, yep, but yep, it also like, takes yep. takes away the low. Yep, exactly. Like people um, when they say, "Oh, you are," they praise you. Maybe previously you would be like, "Oh,"、yeah. like that for a longer time. Now you think, now, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah. Now immediately、know. it's like <laughs> sometimes you look even a bit rude. <laughs> you know, I've heard that before. Don't tell me. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's like I'm not、uh, that great. <laughs> yeah, people expect. Oh, maybe not. People expect. Oh, I, I mean, internally, you, you like immediately. It's okay, okay, fine. That's her、yeah. projection on me. It's nothing to do with me. But thank you. That's good. <laughs> It means some change happening. Yeah. And one way, if you think your husband's going to die any minute, then don't get so irritable. Don't get angry. Don't waste time. Say what you should say. And、you know, there's so many people that say, "I wish I told my mother or father I love them," but I didn't because I thought there's more time. We always、I、think still, there's, we always、I、think there's more time. 
I still get irritable and it is so correct that our karma is so strong. It's like he say something, I was just like, but mm. I immediately, okay, sorry. It's well, like, if you think in this moment, I'm going to drop dead, yeah. you get irritable and angry and your heart stops and you drop dead, then what was the point of being irritable or angry yeah. if it's the cause of death, right? It's a suffering and it causes death. And if out of the suffering you say something negative, it causes a uh, hungry ghost realm, hell realm, whatever. So why bother? Why do it? So that's, that's how these antidotes are really important. You know, the things like death, impermanence, they're so important because they really antidote the strongly negative mind to enable you to have a better relationship, to enable you to have better relationships with your friends and family. I think this is really important because in our society, so much pressure. So busy, la. You're busy, la. Yeah. You even do your practices in the taxi, la. <laughs> in the ferry. <laughs> Mantras going, <laughs> prayer wheels turning. But, but you know, it's sort of rush, rushing here and there, yeah, doing the, the practices wherever, even in the shower, washing your hair. You know, I mean, I'm the same. It takes me ages to wash my hair. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's the way of life now. So it means not so much quiet time, not so much sitting. And so therefore, difficult to change the behavior. So you yes. need these analytical meditations that you can do actually in your mind, that when the irritability is coming up, you think, aha, there's the irritability. And what it can do is turn into anger. And when it turns into anger, it squeezes my heart. And if my heart just stopped, what would be the point? Because what are we arguing about? Usually something small, nothing important, small things, right? So just let it go. Just like the clouds in the sky, let it go. So is the karma really very strong? Because sometimes I can see it coming, you know, that irritation. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's, like, it's like jogging towards me, that irritation. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, but, yeah, but you're in Buddhism short time. And you've made so many changes. Don't go too fast. Because when you try to change everything very quickly, quickly, it's like an elastic band that, <clears throat> that snaps back to how it was before you know you're stretching too far so go slowly sustainable change over time you're only what one year then there's two years three years when it's five years 10 years 15 years if you haven't changed in 10 15 years you're not a buddhist but if you're gradually changing you're a buddhist you're really transforming your mind but don't go too quickly and don't think that you should go faster than you're going because what I see is change, right? Within that short period, there is change. But if you try to go faster than you're going now, maybe there will be a reaction and it will just go back to the way it was before. Thank you, teacher. Okay, next. Can we have time for a question mm -hmm. teacher um, well, uh, once a psychologist said that uh, about people 
who don't have uh, an interior perception of himself, he said that they're as a hungry ghost. So uh -huh. he, this psychologist used this uh, definition yes. uh, just to uh, talk about someone who has a hole inside of him yes. that couldn't be fitted. Yes. No matter how much love we yes. can give him, uh, yes. take care of him, and yes. so he developed anger, is manipulating other yes. uh, around him. What do you think about it? Probably true. I think that there are many people who are similar to hungry ghosts in that they look externally for something to grasp onto in order to fulfill their need. But actually the whole cannot be fulfilled. It's, a, it's not a physical whole, but they're, they're externalizing it as physical. So, um, you know, I want a mobile phone that will make me happy. I want a relationship that will make me happy. I want money. I want food. I want this. I want this. And they keep grasping onto objects, people, whatever, in order to make them happy, thinking the happiness will come from externally internally but because it's a mental problem a mind problem then these objects and these people don't make them feel satisfied give them more dissatisfaction um it's the more that you want uh, no you want and therefore you want more and because you want more and then it turns into dissatisfaction then you want even more and so it's as if the hole is growing bigger, not getting smaller. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. So, you know, we, we started out with the premise that the hole is this size. This is the size of hole I want to fill. And so give me food, give me people, give me like this. And I'm assuming that by grasping grasping an attachment, the hole is getting smaller and smaller. But actually what's happening is the hole's getting bigger and bigger psychologically. So the problem is manifesting in a worse way, not a better way over time. So I think from a Buddhist perspective, um, maybe, you know, as a human being, you wouldn't say this person's like a hungry ghost, but maybe psychologically, it's a good description because hungry ghost is always looking for something but can't find enough. Never satisfied, can't find enough. Very thin throat and big stomach. So it's the depiction is um, even if I found some food, I wouldn't be able to swallow it enough to fill my stomach. I can't get enough. Does that make sense? Yes. So I think the problem is that many people have this. We're in this desire realm, and we assume that the more that we desire, the more that we get, the more satisfaction we will have. But from a Buddhist perspective, the more desire we have, the more we get, the more dissatisfaction we have. 
But from society's perspective, they're selling us the idea, get more, you'll be happier. The Buddhist idea is the reality. Get more, you'll have more dissatisfaction. Because every item that you get is impermanent. The people that you desire that you get, they have a changing mind. You have a changing mind. So I fall in love with you, then in one year I can be out of love with you. Or you can be out of love with me. Or we don't love each other anymore and we're fighting. Or we're totally in love and then in five years we're not in love. I mean, people's minds change so much. So you can see we desire something, we get it, and we assume in samsara we're going to get happiness from it, but in actual fact, what we get is dissatisfaction. More attachment, more grasping, more dissatisfaction, more suffering. So the whole is getting bigger, not getting smaller. So I think hungry, hungry ghost type of mind, yeah. It's not the hungry ghost realm, but sim similar to the hungry ghost suffering. It's true. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I hope it's not you, Sabrina. No. <laughs> but I... Well, aren't, you in, aren't you in Switzerland? Mm -hmm, yes. Mm, that chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> the pralines and the lint chocolate. I mean, really. You could suffer. No, it's not me. But uh... <laughs> I know. I know it's not you. But I'm just joking. But, you know, you can live in Switzerland and think that chocolate is happiness. Mm -hmm. And the more chocolate I get, the happier I'm going to be. And you can live in another country where they can't get chocolate, and all they think about is Swiss chocolate. You know, oh, the Swiss must be so happy because they have Toblerone. You know, it's the way of labeling, the way of projecting um, is so unrealistic. We look at other countries and other nationalities and think, wow, they must be so happy. I know people in India, when I lived in India, they all wanted to move to America, to the United States. I said, but why? Oh, you know, it's like paradise. Absolute paradise. Not so much Europe, but Indians want to go to the United States because they have this false view of it being absolutely perfect and you're going to earn masses of money, you're going to be so rich, you know, like this. This becomes like a hungry ghost mind if it goes to the extreme. I mean, I'm going to go to America, I'm going to earn some money, okay. But if you, if you exaggerate it, it becomes hungry ghost mind. So look at the exaggeration. There's the normal desire attachment and then there's a the hungry ghost desire attachment. I think that's where you look at the hungry ghost desire attachment is exaggerated. It's too much. And therefore, it makes you suffer greatly. And the more you get, the more you suffer. Yeah? Yes. But is there a risk to fix someone in that label? <laughs> Uh, if we think about I thought, I thought you were going to ask me 
is, is there a, a problem with fixing it? And the picture, the picture I got in my mind was you have a needle and thread and you're, you're sewing the hole. <laughs> so there's a big hole here and you're sewing, sewing, trying to pull it together. <laughs> you know, I think that um, trying to fix anybody is a problem. I think that each one of us needs to understand the truth of suffering. And when we're talking about children, teenagers, young adults, very difficult to understand the truth of suffering. But as we get into our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, we, we really start to understand the truth of suffering. Some, some kids are quite amazing. Some kids do understand very early on. But I think um, suffering has to manifest in your life, not... You drop your iPhone and you crack the screen. Oh, no, my, you know, my phone. <laughs> Not that type of suffering, but real suffering, psychological suffering. That then you think, oh, wow, that's true. There really is suffering. When you talk to people who haven't suffered, you know, I was talking to somebody today um, about teaching in a school for children. And I said, you know, I taught in Mexico to 14 to 18 year olds. And I was talking about Buddha's teachings. And if I talk too much about suffering, they're gonna say, they were lying there in the front with their girlfriends, you know, 14, 15 year olds with their girlfriends, I think around that age. They would, they would say, what a load of rubbish. I'm not suffering. I'm fine. I've got a girlfriend, you know, my life's okay. But at that time in Mexico, there were a lot of uh, kidnappings and murders in that particular area where I was. So if you really connected with what was going on, you could understand the truth of suffering. But if you isolated yourself, insulated yourself from that suffering, then you could say, my life is fine. And I think many uh, young people are insular, are isolated until the suffering cuts through and then they experience it, and then they can start to uh, understand Dharma. Thank you. So yes? Much. Okay. Maybe we should stop. Oh, so late. Sabrina, what have you done to me? So next week I continue with the Four Noble Truths. I want to know uh, what you got out of thinking about suffering, um, thinking about the different, suffer different suffering realms, uh, and then relating it to cause. If you have any thoughts about that, I'd be interested to hear about the thoughts. So we're going to dedicate, um, I think we'll use Shantideva, page 23. May all beings everywhere play by sufferings of body and mind, obtain an ocean of happiness and joy by virtue of my merits. May no living creature suffer, commit evil or ever fall ill. May no one be afraid or belittled with a mind weighed down by depression. May the blind see forms and the deaf hear sounds. May those whose bodies are worn with toil be restored on finding repose. May the naked find clothing, the hungry find food. May the thirsty find water and delicious drinks. May the poor find wealth, 
those weak with sorrow find joy. May the forlorn find hope, constant happiness and prosperity. May there be timely rains and bountiful harvests. May all medicines be effective and hopes and prayers bear fruit. May all who are sick and ill quickly be free from their ailments. Whatever diseases there are in the world, may they never occur again. May the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power and may people think of benefiting each other. For as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, until then may I too remain to dispel the miseries of the world. I think that's all we'll do today because we're very late. I'm sure you have other things to do. And we will see you next week, same time, same place. Thank you all for joining. I really enjoy teaching. And I'm happy to be back with you. And um, I'll be happy to hear your feedback next week. Thank you. Thank you, teacher. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Sayonara. Bye.